you would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way to the first verse of chapter 4. Now, a lot of you already know this about me. I'm a fan of nerdy theology t-shirts. I love them. I've got one that's black. And on the front, there's a skeleton holding a lit lantern. Now, Nathan Smith saw this and immediately pointed out that the artist drew the ribcage upside down. But don't worry, that won't keep me from wearing it. But why the skeleton? Well, my guess is that the anatomically ignorant artist had in mind the Valley of Dry Bones from Ezekiel 37. And if you remember that great passage, the Lord takes Ezekiel and shows him a valley filled with dry bones. And then he asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? And you've got to love Ezekiel's answer. He says, oh Lord God, you know. And then what does the Lord say? Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones. Speak my word over them. And Ezekiel does this, and what happens? There's a great rattling. And all the bones begin to assemble and to be covered with flesh and come back to life. That, I think, is the explanation of the skeleton. But what about the lantern that's being held? Well, my guess is that it represents the word of God, which brings light where there is death. I'm I'm sorry, life where there is death and light where there is darkness. I think of what the psalmist wrote. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so on this shirt, you've got a skeleton holding a lantern. And then surrounding this image are the Latin words post tenebrae lux. How's your Latin? It says, or it means, after darkness, light. That was the slogan That was first adopted by the Christians in Geneva during the time of John Calvin's ministry, post-Tenebrae Lux. And then it was soon adopted by others and became a slogan of the Protestant Reformation as a whole. Well, why? You see, just prior to the Reformation, hardly anyone had a copy of God's Word. Hardly anyone had access to it. It was very expensive to just own a copy of the Bible, and even if you could afford it, most people couldn't read it because the most widely circulated translation, the one used within the Roman Catholic Church, was written in Latin. Imagine coming in here today, not having your Bible with you, not having a Bible in the pew back, And sitting there and listening to Bill Davis and to me read the scriptures in Latin. That was every Sunday prior to the Reformation. 
When God's word was read aloud, none of the congregation knew what was being said. And sad to say, there were some priests who didn't even know what was being said. And I've got a story about that. When the priest would perform the Mass, he would stand before the people and hold up the bread, and in Latin, say, hoc est enum corpus, which means, this is my body. But over time, there were priests who weren't great with Latin. They'd forgotten the languages from seminary, and they would butcher it. And so there were very real instances. This really happened where a priest would stand before the congregation, hold the bread up in the air, and say, hocus pocus. That's where it comes from. A priest performing the Mass, not knowing the language he's speaking, and then mispronouncing the very words that our Lord spoke when he established the Lord's Supper. This October, now you have a fun story to tell. You know where Hocus Pocus comes from. That was a problem. The fact that God's people didn't have his word. And so this was one of the primary goals of the Reformation. Get God's word into the hands of God's people. And so the printing press started mass-producing Bibles. The scriptures were translated into the common tongue, be it English, French, or German. And then with Bible in hand, God's people would sit under the teaching and preaching of the word in their own language. And the result was that God's word was unleashed. Light came after darkness. The light of God's word shone and revived a church that looked like a valley of dry bones. That's a picture of today's passage. God's people were in darkness. The word of God was very rare. The priests, as we saw last week, were corrupting the worship of God and perverting the place of worship. But today we will see post-tenebrae lux. God had not abandoned his people. And so we'll see him call Samuel to be the first in a long line of prophets who will faithfully speak God's word to God's people and bring revivification to this seemingly dead nation. Let's pray and then we'll read it together. Father God, we do plead that as your word is read and preached, that you would open the ears and the eyes and soften the hearts of your people. Make us receptive to your word. Father, if there's anything I say that is unhelpful or worth forgetting, may it be forgotten. But Father, if there be truth for your people, If there be grace for them, would it find fertile soil and take root and produce fruit for your glory? 
ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was laying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know that the Lord... He did... Verse 7 again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again a third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. For the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. 
let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Our chapter begins with the boy Samuel ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the high priest. Now last week we got a picture of little Samuel growing up, didn't we? We were told that every year his mother Hannah would come to Shiloh to worship and she would bring Samuel a new robe she'd made herself. This is, this is his back to school clothes that he would wear for the upcoming year. And she did this year after year. And now Samuel is an older boy, maybe an adolescent, maybe a teenager. Jewish tradition holds that he was 12 at the time. But he's still there serving God despite the horrible influences that are surrounding him. Now this first section I've entitled, The Light of God's Word Dim. And that's because of what we read in the second half of verse 1. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. It was exceedingly rare for God to speak to his people during this time. What we saw last week with that unnamed prophet showing up at the end of chapter 2 and speaking to Eli, that was an anomaly. Now, why would God be silent? Why would his word be rare? I think it's due to the sin of his people. His people looked and acted very much like the world. They went after other gods. They prized other things above him. They disobeyed his commands and transgressed the covenant. And so God judges them by remaining silent. Is that strange for you to think about? What usually comes to mind when we think of the judgment of God? Maybe fire falling on Sodom and Gomorrah? Or foreign superpowers like Assyria and Babylon besieging and destroying cities? But how about God's silence? Does that scare you to think about? Well, it should. We have an example of this in the book of Amos. God's people have once again fallen into unbelief idolatry. So Amos is sent to bring a word of judgment against them and he says, a famine is coming. Is it a famine of food? Are they going to be hungry? No. Uh, Is it a famine of water? Are they they going to suffer from dehydration? No. What's coming? A famine of hearing the words of the Lord. 
And through Amos, God says, You people will wander everywhere to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but you will not find it. God's silence, his people not being able to hear his word, is a sign of divine judgment. He's saying, if you dismiss my word, if you disobey my word, if you show that you care nothing for it, I will take away its light and let you wander aimlessly in the darkness that you seem to love so much. This is how it was in Samuel's day. The word of God was rare. But do you know what wasn't rare? Religion. This is an important point. God's word was rare, but religion wasn't. One of the guys I read noted that religion and immorality can coexist quite comfortably. Think about that. Religion and immorality can coexist quite comfortably. Lack of God's word doesn't correlate to lack of religion. There's always plenty of religion. In Samuel's day, there were priests and rituals. We saw that last week on chapter 2. We saw everything that's going on in the tabernacle. There was plenty of religion. Or you think back to my opening illustration, talking about the Reformation. Prior to the Reformation, there was lots of religion in the darkness. I mean, the famous thing that set off Martin Luther were these men walking around the countryside, going from town to town, telling those poor souls that if they would only give toward the Pope's new building campaign, which was St. Peter's Basilica, if they would only give towards it, they could free their deceased relatives from purgatory. Religion and immorality can coexist quite comfortably. I mean, just think about the examples from our own day. You can go to any major American city, Atlanta, D.C., New York, and you'll see historic church buildings that have huge rainbow flags hanging over their entrances. There are churches over and over again that cover up instances of sexual abuse. And they'll move the pastor or priest to another congregation instead of removing them from their office. I mean, religion with its priests and its sacraments and its rituals and its gospel is never rare. But the word of God And the proclamation of it and faithfulness to it may be very rare. In verse 1, we read that the word of God was rare in those days. And you might hear that and breathe a sigh of relief. Because you've got a Bible in your hands. You've got a Bible in the pew back. You've got a Bible on your phone. You've got a Bible that lives in your car. You've got six Bibles that live on the bookshelf at home. And so you breathe a sigh of relief. Nothing to worry about here. 
You know, in Samuel and Eli's day, it was the spoken word that was rare. You know it can also be rare? The hearing of God's word. Now, I've got a pair of AirPod Pros that I love. I'm not going to tell you that I use them in the car because I don't. that might be against the law. But whether I'm out in the yard or in the garage or working around my house, I've got them in. I'm always listening to a sermon or an audiobook or a podcast. And my AirPod Pros have this great function called noise canceling. I hold down the stem... And all of a sudden, everything goes quiet. And I can clearly hear the voice of the audiobook. And what happens far too often is that I'm just in the middle of a chapter. And I look up and I see this. (laughs) Molly's mouth moving. And I haven't heard a word she said, and so I have to hit pause and remove the AirPod and then ask her to repeat herself. When I have that noise canceling on, I am deaf to my wife's words. You know, the same thing can happen with God's word. It can be right in front of us, but we don't hear it. Think of Isaiah 6. There's the scene where Isaiah sees the throne of the Lord. He sees the angels flying to and fro, singing, holy, holy, holy. His lips are cleansed. The burning coal touches them. And then he receives his commission from the Lord. Do you remember what it was? The Lord sent Isaiah to say to the people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. The Lord is sending Isaiah to speak his word to his people and they won't be able to hear it. Again, this is a sign of judgment. And just to stop you before you go there, I want you to say, well, that's just the mean Old Testament God. Jesus repeats those same words. He repeated those same words when his disciples said, Lord, why do you speak in parables? And it's not that Isaiah's audience and Jesus' audience were ignorant or uneducated. The issue was they didn't want to hear. Because they didn't like what was being said. You know, it's possible to starve in two ways. You can starve by lack of food. Or you can starve by lack of appetite. So here's a question. If it's the judgment of God to not have his word and to not be able to hear his word, then isn't the opposite true also? 
I mean, what a blessing it is that we have a Bible in our hands right now. What a blessing it is that you have more copies of the Bible than than you know what to do with. What kindness God has shown us. And in addition, what a blessing it is when you have an appetite for the Scriptures. When they feed you and you desire to sit under them and to learn and to grow in your knowledge of the Lord and His kingdom. That is a great grace from God. And I just want to encourage you because I, I don't want to just beat you down today and you leave thinking, I need to care more about my Bible. We read our assurance of pardon. From Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. If you have an appetite for the Scriptures, if you long to learn more about God and His kingdom, if they feed you and nourish your soul, that's a sign that He has begun a work in you. Be encouraged. It's a great grace to have the Word of God and to have an appetite for the Word of God. And since that is true, we've got to keep it central in all that we do as a local church. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary says, quote, If contemporary believers have a church where social activities, committee meetings, and nifty programs have not eclipsed the place of the Word of God. If the teaching of the Word of God stands at the heart of the church's life, if there is a pulpit ministry where the Scriptures are clearly, accurately, and helpfully preached, then they are rich in the grace of God. End quote. That is what your elders and I are aiming for, Trinity. That is our target. Pray for us. Pray that we would continue on toward that end. Well, some of you are nervous. Because I'm four pages into my manuscript and I haven't made it to verse (laughs) 2. We need to see the light of... God's word come. And we see this in verses 2 through 10. When the silence is broken. You know, we had a lot of contrasts last week. We've got another one this week. We're told that Eli can barely see anything. His eyesight was poor and he could not see. But young Samuel is about to receive a vision. He's lying down in the temple. It's the wee hours of the morning, probably between 3 and 5 a.m. The Lord called Samuel audibly. It wakes him up. It's so clear. He's sure that Eli is calling him. And he gets up and runs to Eli and wakes him and says, What do you need? Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. A second time, the Lord calls Samuel and he gets up and runs to Eli and says, here I am. And Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. 
And then we're given an explanation here by the author in verse 7. Now Samuel did not... I messed it up the first time and the second time. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. That's why he keeps thinking what he's hearing is Eli. He did not yet know the Lord. Now, we saw similar words last week, didn't we, when we were looking at the sons of Eli. We're told they were worthless men who did not know the Lord. Now, we need to distinguish here that these are very different cases. The sons of Eli are grown men, religious leaders of the nation, who should know the Lord, but their hearts are hardened. Samuel is a child. He served in worship. He's helped Eli. He's learned the catechisms and the prayers and the hymns. He just hasn't yet come to know the Lord. And again, this is the prayer that we all have for our own children, isn't it? Not only that they would be able to answer questions in Sunday school or that they would be well thought of by the adults in the church, but also that the Spirit of God would so move in their little hearts that they would come to know and trust the living God. And this is that moment for Samuel. And Eli is going to help him. A third time, the Lord calls Samuel, and he gets up and goes to Eli and says, Here I am. And something connects in Eli's mind. He has a hunch of what's going on. And so he tells Samuel, go back. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And then what do we see? Fourth time's the charm. Samuel lays back down. And in verse 10, the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Now, what do you and I do with this? First, you need to understand that you are not Samuel. Remember, Samuel is fulfilling a unique role at a unique time in redemptive history. Which means that you can stay up all night tonight and plead, speak for your servant hears. Speak for your servant hears. And you will be disappointed and very tired on Monday morning. If you want the Lord to speak to you, open your Bibles and read the Scriptures. They are enough. They are sufficient. Everything you need for faith and practice is found within them. Go to them and don't stay up late beating your chest, hoping to hear an audible voice. You are not Samuel. Second thing we see here is the Lord knows Samuel's name. He calls him by name. I mean, we talked about this last week when I mentioned Isaiah 49. How, how amazing is it 
that our Lord has the names of his people engraved on his hands. He knows your name. He knows the names of your children. The Lord is immense and transcendent, but he is also near to his people. And he knows your name. Third, we see the Lord's patience, don't we? He doesn't lose his patience with Samuel. He's not irritated that it took him four calls to get through. He doesn't scold Samuel for confusing his voice with Eli's voice. He is patient and gentle and bears with Samuel's weakness. He is content to wait until Samuel has a better understanding of what's happening. I think some of us might need to hear that. Your Some of you may view God as an impatient, annoyed father who is bothered that it has taken you so long to get it. But he's patient. Now, if you want a clearer picture of this, again, all you have to do is look at the Lord Jesus. And in John 16, we see him tell his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. The Lord didn't expect Samuel to pop up and say, Speak, Lord, your servant hears on the first try. The Lord Jesus didn't expect His disciples to be able to understand everything that He could possibly lay out for them. And so he promises to send his spirit and he will incrementally lead you into maturity and into a knowledge of the truth. Don't dismiss God's patience bearing with the weakness of his people. We also see that God's word is hard. What does the Lord say to Samuel? So far, all we've talked about is him saying his name. What does he say? He says a word of judgment against the family of Eli. Now, I don't have time to spend on this today. I've already spent it elsewhere. Um, but if you, if, you weren't here, I, if you weren't here last week and you read this, you're going to see things that are going to make you say, Whoa, what does that mean? especially when it comes to like no sacrifice for the family of Eli. Please go back, listen to the sermon from last week. We got all into the sons of Eli. We talked about why they are beyond forgiveness. That's recorded on the website. Give it a listen. I'm I'm not going to get into that today. But just notice here that God's word can be hard and difficult. And at times we may hesitate or be apprehensive or fearful to share it. We see that in verse 15. Samuel was dreading telling Eli this word. He was afraid to tell Eli what the Lord had told him. 
And we need to acknowledge that there's a similar temptation for us. A similar temptation to downplay or avoid speaking of hard things. Things like judgment and hell and God's wrath against sin. We convince ourselves that if we leave out the first half of the gospel, you know, that we are wretches in need of a Savior, if we leave that out, our message will be more palatable and we will win more people to Christ. But if we continue down that road of tampering with or softening the message, we, in the end, will make the cross pointless Most of you know the modern hymn, In Christ Alone. We sing it in worship. Well, back in the summer of 2013, it made the headlines. A hymnal committee from the Presbyterian Church USA wanted to add In Christ Alone to their new hymnal. But before adding it, they requested permission from the two hymn writers to change a line that they viewed as problematic. Some of you might know what it was. There's a line that says, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. This hymnal committee did not like that line. They wanted to change it. They wanted their hymnal to say, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And much to their credit, the songwriters rejected the proposed change. And to the loss of the PCUSA, it was not added to their hymnal. Keith Getty was one of the two Songwriters of In Christ Alone. And in an interview, Getty said this, quote, We believe altering the lyrics would remove an essential part of the gospel story as explained throughout Scripture. The main thread of what we see revealed throughout the Old and New Testament is the need for man to be made right with God. The provided path toward reconciliation came through Christ's predetermined and perfect sacrifice on the cross, satisfying God's wrath once and for all. The hymnal committee wanted to change the lyrics to focus on how Christ's death on the cross magnifies God's love for the world. And indeed, God's love was magnified on Calvary's hill. Yet the way this occurred was through Christ doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, shedding his own perfect blood to atone for our sins. End quote. The word that we have received, the light of the gospel, reveals that sinners have been saved from something. And if we leave that something out, we lose the gospel. And grace is no longer amazing. I want to wrap it up by quickly looking at both Eli and Samuel here at the very end. I believe it's Richard Phillips in his commentary who described Eli as a complex guy. 
And he is. There's both bad and good. He was a terrible parent. He honored his sons over the Lord. He didn't restrain them from blaspheming God. His family line is going to end. But at the same time, he loved Samuel as a son. He realized that it was the Lord calling Samuel and he told him what to say. He then forced Samuel to tell him the whole truth and pull no punches. He said, tell me exactly what he told you. Hold nothing back. And then here at the end, Eli submits to the word of the Lord. He doesn't shake his fist at the heavens. He doesn't curse God and die. He humbles himself and says, let the Lord do what seems good to him. And that's a good word for us to remember from the high priest. Our God will always do what seems good to him. And he has promised that whatever he does, in the end, it's always for the good of his people and makes them more like his son, Jesus Christ. Then there's Samuel. We're told that he grew. The Lord was with him. And he's placed as the first of a long line of prophets who delivered God's word to God's people. And we're back to where we begin. Post-tenebrae lux. After darkness, light. God's word was no longer rare. Rather, it was established. And none of his words fell to the ground. It didn't go out empty and it didn't go out and and then return empty it it accomplished its purpose and what a blessing this was for israel so to end may we also be those who cherish the word may we be those who beseech him to give us ears to hear and may we be those who guide and assist our children in hearing his voice so that they and we would know the truth and walk in the light. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the height of your plans for us. Truths unchanged, from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And by grace, we'll stand on your promises. And by faith, we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.